0: This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: So, people with disabilities say that their quality of life is equal to, or sometimes even better, than people without disabilities. And yet, people in healthcare judge people with disabilities as having a very low quality of life. It's almost like we just don't believe them.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this in depth episode of Ethics Lab. In these special episodes, we invite colleagues to take a deep dive into a topic to examine it in detail. As always, we'll invite national experts to provide commentary and insight for practical results. This approach will offer our listeners a deeper exploration of key issues. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab.
3: When you hear the phrase quality of life, what comes to mind? Playing with family in the park? Having dinner with friends? Taking a class? Learning a language? Watching a movie? Going to work? Or maybe maybe you think of a patient. Someone who's bedbound, who can't do everyday things on their own, like bathing or dressing. Someone who's on a ventilator in an ICU. Or a dementia patient with a feeding tube. It's a pretty vague term, but for something so unclear, it's used pretty widely in healthcare. It's commonly used when making treatment decisions, especially significant ones with life-altering implications. It's even one of the main components in one of the most widely used analytical tools in clinical ethics, the four-topics method, also called the four-box method. But how do you define quality of life? How does it impact medical decisions? Why is it so widespread in healthcare, and should that spread concern us? Today we're going to take a deeper dive into quality of life in medical decision-making. My name is Beckett Grimels. In these special episodes, we will take a deep dive into a topic to examine it in detail. As always, we'll invite national experts to provide commentary and guidance to help us think through complex questions and ethics to provide better knowledge and practical results. The concept of quality of life is used every day by clinicians to make medical decisions and recommend treatment options to patients and surrogate decision makers. It's a primary component of the Four Topics Method, developed by Drs. Albert Johnson, Mark Siegler, and William Winslade. It's one of the most widely used analytical frameworks in clinical ethics. Quality of life is also a central feature in many well-known foundational clinical ethics cases, like Dax Cowart, Nancy Cruisen, or Terry Schiavo. Spend a half a day in an ICU, and you're bound to hear it said several times. The same goes for palliative care, hospice, orthopedics, physical rehab, or any number of medical specialties. For something so common, you might be surprised to know... Quality of life does not have a standard definition.
1: In some sense, quality of life is an incredibly vague term.
3: That's Dr. Devin Stahl, a bioethicist at Baylor University. She specializes in clinical ethics and disability ethics.
1: A lot of people, a lot of clinicians, mean something like, you know, satisfaction with a a person's life, um, their happiness, their general well-being. And so in healthcare, we'll often use quality of life as kind of that general you know, how how are things going with me? Or how are things going with the patient? How are they, what is their general sense of their well-being?
3: What does this look like in practice? In general, there seem to be two broad senses of this general sense of well-being when thinking about medical care. The first is talking about future medical decisions.
1: Well, I think actually quality of life really helps when we're talking to patients and we're doing this thing we call advanced care planning. So, When I talk to patients um, and ask them, you know, do you want this treatment or that treatment? If they're able to answer those questions in the moment, that's great. But the problem is that a lot of us won't be able to say yes or no to particular medical interventions when we need them the most. And so in advanced care planning, I think one of the best things we can do is to not ask people, you know, would you want a ventilator at the end of life? would you want a respirator? Would you want a feeding tube? These are really esoteric questions and it's really hard to know because we can never predict what kind of state we might be in where we'd want those technologies or not. Now, some people are really good at that. They'll say, I would never want any of that. In which case, great. It's easy then to fulfill that wish. But if you're not so sure, then we need to talk a different way. And I think one way which we can do that is to talk about quality of life instead of medical interventions. And when you start having those conversations, um, then we can talk about goals of care and how medical interventions might enable you to do something or not do something. But I think that that's kind of a better way to do advanced care planning is to have conversations about what you want the end of your life to look like and what makes life worth living. So that's one way in which we might talk about quality of life as it's tied to medical decision-making.
3: Okay, that sounds good. Makes sense to talk about what's important to you in your life when deciding how decisions about your care should be made if you can't decide for yourself. But what about the second?
1: There is a way in which you want to talk about how quality of life is tied to what medical interventions will benefit you. So if I were in the hospital and my goal was to leave the hospital and pursue my career as an MMA fighter, which is not my personal goal, but I can understand how it might be somebody's goal, you know, that takes a lot of physical ability. And if I have the kind of condition that there's no way that any medical intervention is going to be able to achieve that goal for me, that's the kind of quality of life I want. That's the, what my, makes my life worth living. It's about what I want and what medicine is able to do for me. So I think That's another way in which it's really important to understand kind of subjective quality of life for each individual when we talk about medical interventions.
3: That subjectivity Dr. Stahl points out is key. Evaluations of quality of life change a lot from person to person. That's why it could be helpful with advanced care planning. And it's also part of how quality of life came to be so prominent in the calculus of medical decisions. Once you have the ability to do something, you tend to start thinking about when or if you should do it. In the mid to late 1900s, back in the early days of clinical ethics, various forms of life-sustaining treatment had recently become available. Ventilators, dialysis, feeding tubes, even treatments like chemotherapy. Doctors were able to help patients with a terminal illness extend their lives longer than ever before.
1: And yet, when they were extended, it left some people in states that maybe they didn't want to survive in. Um, So we think about ventilators and feeding tubes, which were invented to become... Bridge technologies. They were meant to be technologies that helped get somebody over a very acute condition and then bring them back to their normal state or what we call their baseline. And the problem soon arose that we were using these technologies at the very end of life. And so they were kind of a bridge to nowhere. People were left unconscious on ventilators, on feeding tubes, on lots of different technologies. And it was only once we removed them that the people on them were able to die. And that's not really what they were invented for. And some of bioethics arose around these questions of, should we use technology always? Is it always a good? Or might it merely prolong someone's dying? And so I think for me, at least, it seems it makes a lot of sense to couple the idea of quality life with bioethics, because they both are trying to get at this idea that, Just because we can do something in medicine doesn't mean that we necessarily should.
3: That subjectivity is seeming pretty helpful here. One patient talking about what's important to them and deciding when they might want to continue life-sustaining treatment and when they might want to stop it. There are concerns about that subjectivity, and we'll come back to that in a bit. But this subjectivity shows you, in part, how quality of life as a concept has become so widespread. It's tied to the core of the concept of quality of life, and it allows clinicians to tailor the risks and benefits of a particular treatment to the unique situation of this particular patient. That flexibility allows an objective thing, like medical treatment, with its own data and protocol, to be adapted to the billions of different ways we live out the human experience. This practicality is incredibly useful for thinking through complex decisions about medical treatment. There's also a theoretical reason why quality of life is so commonly used. There are many different theoretical moral frameworks available. One that's well-known is principalism, which is based on four ethical principles, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, famously described by Tom Beecham and Jim Childress. Other frameworks include virtue ethics, ethics of care, consequentialism, or natural law. The four-topics approach I mentioned earlier is another ethics framework that's popular with clinicians. It's often called the four-box method, and it's described in the book Clinical Ethics, A Practical Approach to Ethical Decisions in Clinical Medicine. This approach, quote, facilitates thinking through the complexities of ethical issues in clinical care and to assemble representative opinions about typical ethical questions that arise in the practice of medicine, end quote. It helps you identify questions and features in a case that are relevant for an ethical analysis. The four topics are medical indications, patient preferences, quality of life, and contextual features. Almost all ethical frameworks address the concept of quality of life in some manner, but the four topics approach gives it a central place as one of its four pillars. Johnson, Siegler, and Winslade write, The most fundamental goal of medical care is the improvement of quality of life for all those who need and seek care. This approach is commonly taught in medical schools and nursing schools throughout the world and used by many ethics committees. The fact that it's so widespread and that it places improvement of quality of life at the center of medical practice is a big part of why quality of life is so widely used by clinicians to think through treatment plans. You might be thinking, this quality of life stuff sounds great. Doctors have a way to think through treatment options. Patients have a way to let doctors know what's important to them. It sounds like a win win. But that's not true for everyone.
0: I am a I'm Melissa. I'm a health advocate
2: living in Oakland, California. <laughs> and this is Owen. he's going to revoice for me.
3: In her work as a health advocate, Melissa helps educate clinicians on the needs of people with disabilities and how to interact with them as patients. She has a speech disability, so her husband Owen revoices for her. She also has experience with how the four box method works in practice..
0: For me, for me. So
2: let me preface this by saying that I'm not a medical professional, but I did see some instances in which this can be problematic for people with disabilities.
0: Like, they, they this, they the the
2: the method doesn't make a distinction between medical problems and um and disabilities things as a result of disabilities yeah. is that what you mean so, somewhere it says something about return to a normal life, and normal is a problematic word. Is that the word you wanted to use? A Problematic word in the disability community because what is a normal life?
0: It could be about quality.
2: And it's kind of an I think you made an implicit um sort of judgment about what what is quality of life?
0: Well, could not if there was
2: The project itself is all about not making assumptions about a person's life. And the four box method seems to make a lot of assumptions. So that's my spiel about the four box method.
3: Melissa's analysis resonates with what Dr. Stahl sees in her work.
1: When I talk to people. In the disability community or people with disabilities, they're inherently suspicious of quality of life determinations, especially as they're used in medicine.
3: Why are they so suspicious? What are they worried about?
1: So it might be the case, and I I know we've all met these patients that say, as long as I can hug my grandchildren, that's all that really matters to me. And that's true of so many people. And there's other people who would say, you know, I really need to be able to, well, I, the the one I heard recently was, I got to be able to read the Wall Street Journal. That's really important to me. And if I couldn't understand it, if I couldn't sit down and read it every day, my life wouldn't really be worthwhile. And that's a, such a different sort of calculus. And so when we use the same calculus for everybody... That's inherently problematic because that's just not who we are as people. We don't all judge the domains of our life in the same way. And of course, the other problem is, and everybody in healthcare, I think, knows this, but kind of ignores it, is that we're incredibly judgmental about other people's quality of life versus what they say about their own quality of life. And I know we've all heard it, but people will frequently say, gosh, if I had to live like that, I'd want to kill myself. Or, I'd rather be dead than live like that. And that introduces a kind of um, criteria or, or bias against people with disabilities.
3: To get an idea of what this bias looks like in practice, I spoke to Dr. Clarissa Kripke.
4: I'm Dr. Clarissa Kripke. I am on the clinical faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, and I run a program called the Office of Developmental Primary Care. I am the primary care doctor for many of the Bay Area's most medically fragile and behaviorally complex adults with developmental disabilities.
3: Dr. Kripke, you've spent a lot of time caring for people with developmental disabilities and coordinating and interacting with other physicians to help provide that care. Based on your experience, why do you think physicians should pay attention to how they talk about quality of life considerations with patients, especially those with disabilities?
4: There's a lot of power in what doctors say to patients that shape their experience. We are influencers. And when we look our patient in the eye and say, oh, I'm so sorry that you have to live with this horrible disease, and I'm so sorry you'll never get out of bed again, and I'm so sorry that your life will not have meaning and will have low quality, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy.
3: Obviously, you've seen this. What does that look like with a patient?
4: I had a patient who has a very significant disability develop an infection in his gallbladder. And because of his underlying disability, he recovered more slowly than most patients typically recover from gallbladder surgery. But each day he was a little stronger. And I got a phone call from the hospital saying, We need to have a team meeting and we need to discuss his goals of care. And I thought, Well, I thought he was getting better. Maybe something happened. Maybe he had a complication. And they said, No, there's been no complication. He is continuing to get better, but he's getting better slowly. But our treatments aren't going to cure his underlying disability. And I said, Well, so (laughs) that uh, uh, he's. He came in here to get his gallbladder fixed. You fixed it. Thank you very much. And now it's time uh, to wait for him to recover and, and send him home. I wondered why we couldn't send him home to his home where he has his own bedroom with three other clients. And and they had called for they called for hospice in the skilled nursing facility. And so when I went into his room, he was smiling. He was happy to see me. We were interacting. And I asked the hospice nurse who was there, what's his terminal diagnosis? And she couldn't give me an answer. She said, well, he needs this oxygen. And I said, well, what was his last oxygen saturation? And his last oxygen saturation was 98%. Why do you have this oxygen on him? She said, well, he has renal insufficiency. I said, oh, well, let's look at the labs. Well, his creatinine was two. That's not a normal creatinine, but it's certainly not one that uh, indicates that he's going to die anytime soon. I, I kept doing this and they really had no terminal diagnosis. They just made an assumption that someone with a severe disability who is sick was had a poor prognosis.
3: This story is an example of the bias that Dr. Stahl referred to earlier. So what's going on here? Why might a physician or nurse whose goal it is to prolong life and heal patients consider hospice for someone who doesn't have a terminal illness? What's going through their mind?
4: I don't think people are doing this to be mean. I don't think people are doing this to be discriminatory. I think they're confused. That
3: confusion goes back to what Dr. Stahl mentioned about using the same calculus for everybody. This is where quality of life tends to break down as a core concept for making medical decisions. There's a lot of subjectivity to quality of life evaluations. That subjectivity makes it really hard, if not impossible, to compare. And if you're not on top of this, if you're not paying really close attention to how you think and talk about it, it's very easy to confuse the idea, I wouldn't want this for me, with the idea, I shouldn't do this for my patient. There are lots of clinical tools that try to objectively measure quality of life the McGill Quality of Life Questionnaire, or Schedule for the Evaluation of Individual Quality of Life, also called SQL, they ask patients a series of questions about the physical, emotional, spiritual, and social aspects of their lives. Patients usually rate how satisfied they are with certain parts of their life on a scale from 1 to 10. This is common in studies evaluating the toxicity or side effects of chemotherapy, for example. But... Even this objectivity doesn't avoid the concerns Dr. Kripke and Dr. Stahl mentioned. In studies using these tools to measure quality of life, patients consistently rate their quality of life higher than those around them. Higher than their physicians, their nurses, their family members, even if that family member is a caregiver. It's true no matter what tool is used. In a 2001 article, Julia Hall and Lalit Kalra review studies comparing a patient's evaluation of their quality of life with an evaluation by their physicians, nurses, and family members. They point out that, quote, professionals' perceptions may be at odds with those held by their patients. It is therefore important to ask patients to assess their own quality of life, end quote. They found there's usually agreement about physical limitations and ability to function, but that's not necessarily true for other aspects of a patient's life. They conclude that clinicians and family members' quote, tend to rate patients' quality of life worse than patients, end quote.
1: And what we call this in disability studies is the disability paradox.
3: That's Dr. Stalligan.
1: So people with disabilities say that their quality of life is equal to, or sometimes even better than, people without disabilities. And yet... People in healthcare judge people with disabilities as having a very low quality of life. It's almost like we just don't believe them.
3: One example that's especially persuasive is locked-in syndrome. This is a condition in which the patient is completely paralyzed physically, unable to control anything except their eyes, but they're completely aware of what's happening. Locked-in syndrome seems like it would be the perfect example of low quality of life. You're unable to move. You're fully aware of what's going on around you and communicating with others is difficult, if not impossible. It's easy to find a lot of difficulty with a life like that and hard to find much good.
1: But when you ask people who've been locked in what their quality of life was like, they judge it to have been pretty good and they don't want to die. And I think that surprises people.
3: A 2011 study by Marie O'Reilly Bruno found that 72% of 65 people with locked-in syndrome reported being happy. Multiple other studies before and since have confirmed these results. Despite what we may think, people with an extremely limiting disability like locked-in syndrome are generally happy with their life. Results are similar for other disabilities too.
1: And yet we continue to practice medicine as if we could judge other people's quality of life and that it inherently is lower when they have particular diseases and disabilities.
3: So what now? Quality of life is widely used. It raises significant concerns. What can clinicians and ethicists do? There are other options, lots of them, but let's look at four in particular. The first option is the simplest. Never mention or discuss the concept at all with patients, clinicians, or family members. As a clinical ethicist, this is my own approach, so I admit I'm partial to it. I don't use the phrase quality of life at all when doing ethics consults. Instead, I focus on the benefits and burdens of the treatment in question, rather than the life or the person or the way of life and its difficulties. I ask questions like, is this treatment worth it? Or what is daily life like on a chronic ventilator? This can help avoid questions like, is this person worth it? Or, is that kind of life worth living? Asking those questions can lead to the concerns among those with disabilities, like Dr. Stahl described. After all, we're all worth it. We're all equally valuable. Focusing on the treatment helps avoid that mix-up. If someone else brings up quality of life, I'll address it. But I don't start it. Adjusting to this approach takes time. Simple isn't always easy. It's certainly harder if you're used to using quality of life all the time in these conversations. So this option may not be for everyone. The second option is to change the conversation. I asked Dr. Stahl this question. So what's the alternative? If I'm a physician and I say, well, if I'm not using quality of life, then what should I be doing? How would you answer that?
1: When we're talking about quality of life, what we should be talking about is goals of care. And I know that they're not exclusively interchangeable, but it's the same ways in which we might talk about sort of subjective quality of life versus objective quality of life. Goals of care ought to always be based on what that individual patient wants and desires from their medical treatment plan. And then we judge whether a treatment is beneficial or not beneficial based on that goal. But I do think that we don't do a good enough job talking with individual patients and their surrogates about who that patient is and what they would have wanted from their medical treatment. I will often on rounds ask physicians and especially residents, you know, oh you're you're going to peg and tube them today. You're going to, you know, you're going to place the vent today. What's the goal? And how do you know? And they frequently cannot answer that question and to me it's worth taking the time to stop and say we have to have this conversation for every individual patient.
3: If you can't quite get away from using quality of life in these discussions, a third option is to pay close attention to how it's used. Make sure every time quality of life is mentioned that it's clear that only the patient's understanding of their quality of life is what matters. What the doctor, nurse, family, or anyone else thinks is not nearly as important as what the patient thinks. Medical decisions should be based on the patient's perception of the benefits, burdens, or risks, not someone else's. No matter how well-intentioned they are, their understanding is different than the patient's. The data show that pretty convincingly. Finally, there's a fourth option called Who Defines My Quality of Life? Melissa, you've been working for several years with Dr. Kripke and others on a project called Who Defines My Quality of Life? How did this project start?
0: In 2019,
2: my project partner Katie
0: Savin and I
2: We're asked to do a project for the office of developmental primary care.
0: I come my 5 is It will be I Um
2: we were asked to do the project because it's well known That clinicians typically rate our quality of life lower than we do?
0: So so we met with with a group of disabled advocates and a group of family caregivers. So we met
2: with, with a group of disabled advocates and a group of family caregivers.
0: And we discuss topics like communications, life values, topics,
2: We discuss topics like
0: communication communication, personal life values,
2: personal life values
0: medical decision making,
2: medical decision making
0: in, in, in the care an end
2: of life care conversations
3: the office melissa mentioned is the office of developmental primary care at ucsf that dr kripke leads
2: these are melissa's words how did it start the project initially started as an investigation into what defined good end of life care for people with disabilities we quickly we quickly discovered for the participants in our discussion group, end-of-life care was based on how clinicians perceived the quality of their lives throughout their lifespan. The project evolved into what participants wanted doctors to understand about their lives and generally how clinicians should refrain from making assumptions. They can have dangerous
4: side effects. We've had many experiences where hospital teams, ethics teams, have recommend recommended withdrawing life-saving care prematurely. We wanted to ask people with disabilities what their experiences were and what they thought about quality of life. Our project our project was largely in response to ability bias in Our medical facilities to people with disabilities going to hospitals and having the experience of having their lives devalued, of having their medical providers not feel that their lives were worth saving, that of having medical treatments denied to them or not recommended for them because of other people's assumptions about their quality of life, even though they didn't know them.
3: What's the purpose of the project? What do you hope will happen with it? <laughs>
2: Most of the participants had numerous stories about how medical professionals have undervalued their lives. And sometimes they see it as their job to fix people. We're hoping this project will give medical professionals a broader perspective of our lives. Our lives are complex, full of joy and sorrow more than our disabilities. Whole
0: people.
2: We're whole people. (laughs) Um, Doctors see people with disabilities when they're sick, in pain, and not in the community.
3: The Who Defines My Quality of Life project contains advice for clinicians for how to interact with and treat patients with disabilities. The advice came from two focus groups, one of adult advocates with disabilities and another of mothers of children with disabilities. The recommendations covered 12 topics, including communication, decision-making, avoiding assumptions, goals of care, and end-of-life.
2: From our project report, um, I took the, the
0: following.
2: When someone acquires a new condition or loses functional abilities, the rate of acceptance and adaption will take time and can be a frustrating experience. However, significant disabilities should not be viewed as, an, as automatic death sentences.
3: What do your concerns look like specifically? What's an example of it from your perspective, either as a health advocate or as a patient. <laughs>
0: so i
2: i was having headaches and i went to a neurologist to um to get evaluated and it was, was a pretty typical appointment until i got a letter from him
0: And
2: I'm paraphrasing here, but the letter started out something like this poor, unfortunate woman. I think doctors do that a lot. If they see medical equipment or differences, and they can't fix it, they think it's wrong,
0: Uh, 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 uh,
2: or a lesser quality of life. When for you, it's just how you get through the day, for you, it's just life.
0: and people with congenital disabilities.
2: Didn't get the last part.
0: People,
2: people with congenital disabilities.
0: Yeah, all we know.
2: That's, that's all we know.
0: There's some people outside the make a who I guess they would not want to have that power. It's not all right.
2: And so that there are also some people outside of the medical field that I wouldn't want to have evaluating my quality of life and and so it's not to say that this is a this is something that's unique to doctors in
3: the clinical setting.
2: just that just that that's a tricky thing,
3: right: <laughs> We've talked a lot about the concerns quality of life can raise in medical decision making. We need to clarify one point about end of life care. Here's Dr. Kripke.
4: There is such a thing as being too sick to live, but there's no such thing as being too disabled to live. That doesn't mean that people with disabilities don't eventually get sick and die. They do. These concerns about quality of life don't come from vitalism,
3: it's not a push for treatment at all costs, despite the harms to the patients or no chance of benefit you can recognize the conceptual and practical problems of quality of life and still have good end-of-life care. Hospice and palliative care do have a place. In fairness to the authors of the Four Topics Method, they acknowledge these problems with quality of life evaluations, but they believe they can be overcome. Johnson, Siegler, and Winslade write, quote, The opinion that persons with developmental disabilities have poor quality of life may reflect our cultural bias in favor of intelligence and productivity. These obstacles, although very real, can be overcome by planning and effort on the part of those caring for them, end quote. With the reality and speed of modern healthcare and how the four topics method is often taught and used, their message about bias can get
4: easily lost. Where does this leave us? We need to be really careful that we understand how to make people's lives meaningful and that we provide people the support and the encouragement and the role models to make their lives a blessing and to enjoy their lives and to fully participate. All lives are valuable, even the lives of people who are suffering, even the lives of people who are in pain, even the lives of people who have disabilities. A community that excludes even one person is no community at all.
0: I wish full
2: I wish I wish that people knew that that the doctors knew that people with disabilities had rich full lives full of intersecting identities. Full of sorrow and joy and
0: and they want the same life goals
2: and they want many of the same life goals as, as anyone else.
0: <laughs> We're
2: not all sad sacks. Or inspirational.
0: We're just people.
3: We're just people. All cases and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes and on the episode page on missiononline.net. This has been an in-depth episode of Ethics Lab. I'm Beckett Gravals. Thanks, everyone.
0: you have enjoyed this edition of the ethics lab podcast exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics ethics lab was created by kevin murphy and russell keith Line. thanks for listening join us again